right. Good afternoon, everybody. I trust we all had a good lunch, right? Am I correct? And uh, of course, a very heavy dessert huh, to go along with it. <coughs> you know, I've often been uh, scheduled to do afternoon uh, seminars. I don't know why. I wonder whether is it because I'm supposed to be quite good in the afternoon or because they think that, you know, maybe what I'm going to say is not worth listening to, right? And therefore, I'm sort of marginalized. Huh? So I try to think that it's the former rather than the latter. All right. I'm going to talk basically about class and whether class matters. And uh, I'm going to be very focused. I won't uh, beat about the bush. I will be just going straight to the point. <coughs> Excuse me, right? My throat is uh, killing me. All right, first of all, I want to talk about the idea of class in Singapore. I mean, uh, it is not a term that we hear very often in Singapore, right? We hear about ethnicity, we hear about race and religion, but very seldom do we hear about class. And even when we talk about class, it's often about income, whether we have low income or middle income, but very seldom do we talk about class itself. So I think the idea of class is something that needs to be explored. Uh, why and, and, and what exactly it is is its position in Singapore. All right, so um, let me just go through the slides uh, and, and we'll talk about what I have in mind. All right, usually when we try to understand, say, voter behavior, right, we look, a, look, look at it in terms of several dimensions. And some of the key dimensions, I've summarized it into this uh, acronym, right, C-R-A-G-S. All right, so what exactly do I mean by C-R-A-G-S? All right, I mean, it sounds like C-R-E-X, but actually what it means is where C equal, e equal to class, R equals to race, A equals to age, G equals to gender, and S equals to sexuality. All right, Un unfortunately, I don't think we analyze sexuality. Uh, maybe someday we should, but for the moment, we don't. Uh, I've also excluded religion, but actually religion and race sort of go together. So in fact, I can put it as one of the two R's, all right? But anyway, uh, this afternoon, my focus is on class, and therefore the question here is, does class matter? Um, okay, what I want to emphasize here is that, you know, in Singapore, for the longest time, right, we always believe that we have equality of opportunity. And somewhere along the line, there are people who believe that when we have equality of opportunity, we are actually a clustered society. And of course, we know that it's pure nonsense, right? Equality of opportunity does not equate to equality of rewards or results. In other words, inherently, by implication or whatsoever, the results will be unequal, and therefore it's never a cluster society. So equality of opportunity is not the same thing as equality of results. And then, so, uh, my argument is that Singapore is neither classless, definitely we have classes, it is neither classless nor do we have real equality of opportunity. You know, I mean, we can say all we want about uh, educational opportunities, work opportunities, and things like that. But we know that, uh, People differ not only in terms of economic capital, but also in terms of social and cultural capital. You can try to equalize economic capital, but can you equalize social and cultural capital? I think that's very hard, you know. Social connection matters, even though we have a meritocracy in Singapore. All right, moving along. So I would argue that in Singapore, I mean, it's been a long time, but there's sort of like a reluctant recognition of the place or the position of class in Singapore. And, uh, and usually when we talk about class in Singapore, I think what we are trying to argue here and trying to uh, describe about the class structure in Singapore is that we have a small proportion of low-income people and a very large majority of middle-income people in Singapore. So roughly speaking, 
that looks like the class structure in Singapore, all right? Small proportion of low income and large majority of middle income. And in terms of welfare policy, so what is happening? I mean, every time you hear the government talking about welfare, it's always about help for the low income. And uh, we don't talk too much about help for the middle class, but we do emphasize quite a bit about upward social mobility, uh, upward social mobility for the middle class. So in other words, what we are saying here is that the middle class wants upward social mobility. And the low income or the lower classes, what they want is help, you know, financial help, handout whatsoever. Okay, so um, what, what about GE 2011? I think there seems to be this realization that the middle class is unhappy and needs help as well. All right, just like the low income uh, folks in Singapore. All right, before I go into the substance of things, uh, um, I should also say, um, I think I want to make one conceptual clarification. Uh, early this morning, Janadas talked about the sandwich class, right? Actually, I'm quite annoyed by that term uh, because in my view, all right, in my view, there's no such a thing as a sandwich class. I think what we have instead is that we have the middle class and the sandwich generation, all right? You could be middle class and not be sandwich. You could be sandwiched and not be middle class. So I'm saying that conceptually speaking, those two terms are really quite different. Uh, but it's entirely possible that one can be middle class, both middle class and sandwich, and that will be a double whammy. Okay? So I hope that from now on, whenever we talk about sandwich, please use it for generation and not for class. All right, so moving on to talk about the middle class, I suppose we expect, and even the PAP, I think, expect the middle class to be the backbone of society, right? And then we also believe that the middle class has benefited from economic development, there's growing affluence, there's upward social mobility, and therefore ought to be supportive of the status quo in Singapore. But since the 90s, we hear a lot about the middle class squeeze. That means middle class is no longer as comfortable and as secure as we would like it to be, all right? There's a lot of squeeze here and there, and uh, it's no longer as comfortable as before. And uh, beyond the 90s, we hear a lot about the middle class lifestyle being under threat. And then uh, not, not in the sense that we, we are, you know, the middle class under threat, it wants to be helped, but it is uh, exposed. It has to put up with means testing. And at the same time, when they look over at the low income, they realize that these are the people getting all the welfare. The middle, middle class is not getting much of it, okay? So that becomes a problem of squeeze and also when you make comparisons. But anyway, I think from this uh, survey that we've done, right, what we have found is that bread and butter issues matter. All right, we, I mean, it, I hope it doesn't come as a shock to anybody, but it does matter even to middle class people in Singapore. Uh, we also know that middle class people are pro-democratic in terms of their values. And also from the last, uh, uh, whatever experience of Singapore, right, we know that the middle class is willing to support a semi-authoritarian government. You notice I didn't use the word authoritarian, right? It's semi-authoritarian. And, but then this is in the absence of credible alternatives, okay? So in other words, middle class willing to support semi-authoritarian, but in the absence of credible alternatives. So in other words, when there is a credible alternative, we expect the middle class to change, right? Which is what seems to be the case in GE uh, 2011. All right, so coming to the, the, the substance here. So what can we learn about the middle class from 2011 post-election survey? All right, so I guess, we, you know, whenever we think of the middle class, we think of the middle class as very kiasu, right? 
So does it mean that it's no longer kiasu? All right, right now it's willing to throw caution to the wind, it's no longer so concerned about stability and things like that. All right. And then the other point that we want to know is that, you know, uh, is it supportive of a credible, viable opposition to keep the government responsive? I think that is the question we want to ask ourselves when we examine the GE uh, post-election uh, survey. All right, a quick methodological note, and I notice I only have one minute left. So let me just say that we use different indicators of class, and for the purpose of my sharing today, I'll be using two indicators of class, two indicators of class, and they are household income and GOTOP's class scheme. All right, and as you can see very prominently this morning, right, we have the service class, we have the intermediate class, and the working class. And I want you to know that service class is not the same thing as service workers. All right, service class here are the atas one. Uh, uh, they are your middle class or upper middle class. All right, they are not your service workers. Okay, these tables are actually borrowed from uh, Gillian this morning. I think she shared some of this. It's, there are a lot of numbers here, but I don't want you to uh, go through each and every one of these numbers. So I highlighted some numbers for you to look at. Um, if you were to look from left to right, okay, you notice that the lowest is working class, followed by intermediate class, and then service class, right? So our focus here is on the service class, and to me, service class is the sort of middle and middle, middle and upper middle part of the uh, uh, the class structure in Singapore, right? Okay, when you look from left to right, right, the second to the fourth column, you notice that uh, the the service class believe in the need for good and efficient government, right? You notice that the numbers sort of rise as you go along. Uh, maybe slight bit here and there, but certainly it's got the highest score, 4.53 uh, uh, in terms of the need for good and efficient government. The need for checks and balances in parliament also the highest, right? 4.33 as compared to 4.09 for the working class. Uh. And then cost of living is a big issue here, 4.28 as compared to 3.94 for the working, working class. I mean, this is kind of a surprise uh, because we thought that the working class would be concerned about cost of living, but actually here, it is the service class that we are talking about, right? And then the last, the next one is about need for different views in parliament, it's about alternative voices, and again, you find that the service class score pretty high, right? 4.28 as compared to 3.92 for the working class. And uh, I don't think I need to talk about the other side, uh, since I'm running out of time. In fact, I'm gone, right? Uh, in terms of time. And then, uh, okay, this is another table, right? The influence of candidates' uh, characteristics. I don't think I need to talk too much about this, but I'm just staying here. I just wanted to highlight that uh, I think the service class folks expect their MPs and the government to be responsive, all right, to be able to reflect their view. So uh, let me not belabor the point. And then if we move on to talk about communication channels, I think interestingly you find that actually the news, like what Jillian said this morning, right, the newspapers and the TV are still up there. Uh, they're not necessarily overtaken by the internet. Okay, maybe internet 3.79 as compared to local TV 3.73, but newspaper is still 3.83 uh, for the service class, all right? So you find that uh, all these indicators suggest that the middle class folks, uh, you can see that there's a, a shift already as compared to um, the other two classes. All right, the other uh, tables, or rather the other figure I want you to look at is the second row, uh, where it says, important to have elected opposition members in parliament, and you find that when you look from left to right, again, the service class score higher, 4.09 as compared to 4.01. And then uh, 
going to the fourth row, election system is fair to all parties. Again, you find that, um, uh, well, this one maybe is not as solid, right? But when you look, uh, uh, I, I suppose it's not, I don't, I don't really like the figure, right? Let's just say, say as much uh, a strong view as we would like it to be. But uh, when we put all this together in our cluster analysis, right, I think this is what we got this morning, and Gillian uh, has already shared it. Okay, let me now move on. I think I'm running out of time. So let me move on to the political orientation part of it, the cluster analysis that Gillian has shared. I think she showed this table, and I think uh, what I want you to just uh, look at is uh, this part here, right, where it says that when you move from, when you look from left to right again, from the working class to the service class, you notice that the proportion of um, pluralist is much higher among the service class. Okay, no doubt there's a drop compared to 2006, but uh, I want you to compare across classes, and certainly the service class uh, score a lot higher in terms of the uh, pluralist orientation. Okay, um, I let me just show you, this is the highlight, uh, okay? Uh, if you don't remember anything that I say, I think this is something that I hope you remember. I did a run on my own, okay? This is not from Gillian, this is purely my work. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, so what I did was I run across tabulation to find out whether uh, voters, what do they think of the different parties, right? So the numbers reported there are actually the percentage of people who strongly agree or agree that these various parties are credible. And this is what I get, right? So for example, if you are a pluralist, you are going to say that 50% are going to say that the PAP is uh, credible, okay? And then, but the pluralists are very likely to say that the workers' party is credible, all right? So it's 58%. And then, uh, I would like you to also look at the second last column, the one about overall, right? You find that uh, overall percentage would say strongly agree and, and agree. PAP is 71%, but I know that the final figure is actually 60.1, right? So I'm wondering what happened, all right? So those who say that the PAP is credible, actually when it comes to a vote, right, they actually voted for something else. Huh? Okay, for WP, uh, overall in our survey shows 51%. But the actual vote in G2011 was 46.6. So actually, it's quite close. Huh? So I'm quite proud of our data, actually. And then you find uh, the ranking for SPP, SDP, and all that. More or less the same relative position, all right, both in terms of our survey and in terms of the actual January election 2011 results. All right, so let me just move on to my last slide, and then and I'm done, okay? So what we found from all this, which I hope we picked up, is that, of course, there's a concern with bread and butter issues, and along with support for checks and balances and alternative voices. And I think, as Chilean pointed out this morning, right, I think uh, materialist and post-materialist values are not mutually exclusive. Okay, this is for those who are more academically inclined, eh? otherwise you just look at bread and butter issue. <laughs> all right, my second point here is that a growing pluralist and swing orientation, which is on the demand side, I think, must be matched by an increasing presence of credible opposition on the supply side in order to produce a watershed election and more. All right, so in other words, you have supply and demand, and both of these must meet one another. If you only have supply but no demand, it won't work. If you only have demand and no supply, it won't work either. So I think in G. E 2011, what we have is supply and demand sort of match, and therefore that produces 
uh, that produced a watershed election. Okay, my last point here is that, okay, if number two is a correct observation, right? If so, then the migration towards the opposition may persist, all right? With a trajectory heading towards a more than one party system. Okay, so that would be my, would be my conclusion. So uh, otherwise, I would say that 2011 is only one point. So we are waiting for the next point, 2016. And when you have two points, you join them together, we can decide whether we have a watershed or not and whether we are moving towards a more than one party system. Thank you.